This week on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, Deacon Brian McCaffrey and John Stang share their vocational stories. In the first half of the show, we hear from Deacon Brian McCaffrey. George Toman conducts the interview. I am honored to have Deacon Brian McCaffrey on with us. Deacon Brian is from St. Thomas More Parish in Manhattan and is due to be ordained a priest June 5th, 2021 at Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina. He is up next in the discernment here to be ordained a priest. So Deacon Brian, can you hear me and how are you doing? Hello. Yes, I'm doing good. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you for spending a little bit of time with us and your topic is called to the priesthood. Can you tell us a little bit about your family background and how the faith was practiced as you grew up? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in Manhattan and I was the youngest, uh, youngest of three. I have two older sisters, so I was the only boy. And um, growing up, uh, I would say we were not super devout. You know, we were, we were always Catholic. We were always Sunday going. Our kids really made it a point to make sure we uh, went to religious education classes, that we uh, received the sacraments, you know, at the usual times. But, you know, I, I think we weren't super devout in the sense that we, we weren't like a family that prayed the rosary every night, you know, which, which is a great thing, but that just wasn't us. But my parents definitely instilled the faith into uh, my sisters and I. They, they made it a point to help us to see that it's a priority, and they made sure that we had the proper formation that we needed. So uh, I'm very grateful to them for raising me in the faith and that's, that's just a brief snapshot of what life was like. Out of curiosity then, when did you start sensing a call to the priesthood? Tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, sure. Um, my, my discernment story is a little, it was kind of a long process um, throughout college, but I'd say it, the, the seeds of it were planted in high school. I was, I was very involved in my parish, very involved in the youth group. I you know, served at Mass as an altar server ever since fifth grade. And so I had a lot of people in the parish tell me that I should consider being a priest. And I said, no way. <laughs> I, I wanted nothing to do with the priesthood, you know? It was nothing against priests, I just didn't think it was for me. Uh, but people would constantly tell me, oh, you should go to seminary, you'd be a great priest. And to the point that I actually started to get kind of angry and annoyed whenever it happened. <laughs> Uh, but uh, summer after high school, so I graduated high school in 2010, and that summer I went on prayer in action, the mission program in the diocese, and we were in Norton that summer, and we were on our way home, and this was kind of one of like the big moments. We're on the way home, driving in the van, and I forget what we were talking about, but I said something about the church or about the faith, and it triggered one of the girls in the back seat to just say, oh, Brian, you're going to be a priest. I know you're going to be a priest. You're going to baptize my kids. You're going to do my wedding. I'm going to be your parishioner. You're going to be a priest. You're going to be a great priest. I can't wait until you're a priest. I'm going to be at your ordination. And uh, I, I think I told her to shut up. You know, <laughs> I don't think I was polite to her. But, uh, you know, it was weird because she had said stuff like that before, and I'd gotten annoyed in the past. But for whatever reason, just as we continued on the drive, and we're just driving in silence and you know i have nothing to do but just kind of look out the window so i just kind of started thinking well you know what if i did become a priest 
uh, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm never going to, but just, just out of curiosity, what would it be like? And so I started picturing myself saying mass and wearing the collar and hearing confessions. And I can't explain it except it was one of those Holy spirit moments, but I, you know, immediately went from wanting nothing to do with the priesthood to suddenly it was all I could really think about. And I realized I wanted to do it. And, uh, and like my heart started beating really fast and I was like, Oh no, like no way, <laughs> you know, this can't be happening. And so, uh, I got in touch with father Jarrett Conradi. He was the vocation director at the time. Mm-hmm. And I already had plans at that point to start my freshman year at KU to move to Lawrence and start school there. So we decided go ahead, you know, it's too late at this point to get enrolled at seminary. And I mean, I was in like the first weeks of discernment anyway, so you got to give it a little more time. So we decided, you know, go to KU and continue discerning. And, uh, and so that's what I did. I got very involved at the St. Lawrence Center, the Catholic Student Center at KU, and started going to spiritual direction and visited the seminary. And it just kind of came to a point where I, I felt like I might be called to the seminary, but for some reason, not yet. And my spiritual director, you know, backed that up. He told me, like, maybe someday, but for whatever reason, God doesn't want you there now. And so we decided I would just kind of stay at KU. And that's when kind of the discernment kind of became a roller coaster. <laughs> um, I, went, I went back and forth over the next few years. And uh, there were days where I would say, yep, I'm going to the seminary. And then days when I would say, nope, I'm definitely not. I'm getting married. And, you know, I, I dated a few girls, visited the seminary a couple more times, really went back and forth. But I'd say the big moment came, so I was at KU for five years, and it was the spring of my fourth year. I'd been having a lot of conversations with Father Gail Hammerschmidt, who by that point was a vocation director, and just kind of through some of his guidance, he kind of helped me realize that, hey, I, it's been on my heart for this long, and I'm going to keep going back and forth my whole life until I try it out. And so I decided that after graduation, I would enter seminary. And so, so yeah, during my fifth year at KU, that's when I finally turned in an application and I got accepted around Christmas time and I started at seminary the next fall. Why would you want to become a priest in a time where there's a lot of turmoil and confusion, not only in society, but even unfortunately within our Catholic church? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, and like you hinted at, that's, that's a big question as well. Cause, because there has been a lot of, you know, scandal, abuse, corruption. A lot of people have been, you know, hurt, um, by priests, by the church. And a lot of people are angry and, you know, rightly so. I'm, I'm very sympathetic to people's feelings and their attitudes and stuff. And I, I perfectly understand. Yeah. To, to answer that, to start with, uh, I'd kind of like to broaden the question a little bit at first. Absolutely. I, Absolutely. I, recent, I recently watched a video by uh, Bishop Robert Barron, and I, I think the video was a couple years old, but he was talking about why be Catholic during this time. So not just why be a priest, but why even stay in the church. And he told the story about Abraham Lincoln, and during his presidency, you know, America was like falling apart. And, and uh, 
there was the corruption of slavery, which had corrupted the American ideal of freedom and liberty. And the South was seceding, and it's like everything was just kind of crumbling. And, you know, Lincoln easily could have just thrown in the towel, and he could have said, hey, you know what, this is falling apart. Things aren't looking good. Maybe it's time to jump ship. You know, I'm leave the country, go live out my days in peace somewhere. But that's not what he did. Instead, he, I mean, he rallied everyone to him and he said, this is not the time to give up. This is the time to fight, you know, because um, our American ideals are not being lived up to. And so this isn't the time to give up on those ideals, but this is the time to double down and to work harder to realize them and to make them known and um, and to really see that true vision of America. And so Bishop Barron said a very similar thing is happening in the church right now. Many people are wanting to leave the church. They're angry with the church, you know, understandably so. But he says leaving the church would be the wrong answer. Really, the, the correct solution is to, you know, double down and to work extra hard to help actualize or realize the church as it should be and uh, and to really fight for the church that we want and the church that we love and so specifically looking at the priesthood uh kind of with all that in mind why why be a priest i would say first of all we need priests you know if we don't have priests we don't have the sacraments we don't have the eucharist or confession and if we don't have all of those uh, we're going to be even worse off than we are now you know Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. so the church needs priests just for that, if for nothing else, just for the sacramental life. Secondly, kind of going off of um, Bishop Barron's thoughts, I'd say that now is not a time to give up on the priesthood, but now is a time to work harder and to fight harder to restore the priesthood to what it should be. You know, the, the reputation of the priesthood has been tarnished by the deeds of a, a relatively small number of men in the grand scheme of things, but... Um, but those actions nonetheless have had a big and negative impact. And I I just firmly believe that those men and their actions do not define the priesthood Mm -hmm. and they do not define what it means to be a priest. And they don't give a true representation of what the church asks her ministers to be. And so I think now more than ever, we need good priests who can, help to kind of rebuild that reputation, restore that image of the priesthood, uh, and truly represent Christ to the people. And that's not going to be an easy task. <laughs> it's, it's much, much easier said than done. But that's the job that's been placed before us. And the church needs good and holy priests. And I just oftentimes think of what Binky sometimes says. He says, what a great time to be a saint. Because we could easily say, you know, well, it's been 2,000 years. The church had a good run, you know, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, time to give up. But, uh, but, but no, I, I don't think that that is the message of hope. You know, um, I, I don't, I don't think that that is hope or faith. Um, and I sometimes remind people, it's, it's not like this crisis is new in a sense. I mean, the church has been here before. Like you look at the Middle Ages. Yes. Now there were some corrupt clergy. Oh yeah. You know. Um, yes. You you had clergy, you know, stealing money from their parishioners, and they had multiple children with multiple mistresses. And you know, I'm not saying every priest was like that, but it, but it was a problem back then. And the church survived. Uh, you have to remember the words of Christ in the gospel that 
the Holy Spirit is with the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And so we have that assurance from the Lord that whatever um, slime or muck we have to truck through and uh, despite the sinfulness of the church's members or her clergy, the Holy Spirit is still with us and the church will still battle on. Uh, what are some of the services or places you ministered as you completed your time as a seminarian right now, currently as a deacon? Yeah, I've done just about anything and everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I spent a few summers uh, traveling around the diocese working on the prayer and action team. And I did a summer on the Totus Tuus team as well. Uh, so I got to work with a lot of people around the diocese doing that. Uh, within the seminary, we have a lot of different uh, ministry and apostolic opportunities. And so over the year, I've done everything from doing uh, jail ministry to nursing home ministry, uh, teaching religious ed of all ages. I've done campus ministry at a small local university. Uh, I've done hospital ministry. Yeah, they, they've really thrown a lot of opportunities at us over the years. With all those places that you ministered, was there one or a few of them that were most meaningful to you and taught you the most about what life as a priest may be? I would say two of them come to mind as just the most influential. Um, the first were just all the summers I did of uh, prayer in action and totus tuus, because those were really all about just service. So it really taught me the importance of service um, and also just building relationships, getting to know people. Uh, but they were also just very influential on me because before I, I entered seminary, I was really pretty unfamiliar with a large part of the diocese. And those really gave me a chance to travel the diocese and learn about it and get to know the people. And uh, I fell in love with the diocese. And so it, that really played a role in my discernment as well. Because as I got to know the diocese, I you know, could take that to prayer and say, hey, do I, do I want to spend the rest of my life? working with and for these people? And the answer was yes. You know, that this is where I want to be. This is where I want to serve. So those summers doing those programs were influential. Uh, the other one that I would say was most formative for me was the summer. This was two summers ago. I did hospital ministry. And, uh, wow, that, that was a wild summer. <laughs> uh, it, it was the most exhausting summer of my life, too, but one of the most rewarding. Uh, so I was, I was on a team of chaplains at a hospital in Kansas city and I would spend most of the days just kind of going room by room, uh, visiting with patients. But, uh, once a week I had to be on call overnight. And, uh, so see, it was 11 weeks. I did, I think 11 on calls. And one of those times I got a full night's sleep <laughs> Because all night long, uh, I'd get paged to the emergency room. Anytime a trauma patient came in, I got paged and had to go down to the ER. And it was a level one trauma center. So oh, wow. we saw the action, had a lot of sleepless nights. Anytime patients were, you know, going to be dying or, um, you know, being taken off life support, I had to get called to come and be with the family, to pray with the family. And, uh, I would say it was uh, very formative for me in a lot of ways. Uh, one, it, I mean, it took me out of my comfort zone. It forced me to just really get comfortable working in new scenarios and um, stressful scenarios and very 
sorrowful situations as well. It, it really gave me a chance to learn how to just be there with people and for people and not necessarily try to fix people's problems because I found in the hospital I couldn't fix anything, but I could be there with them sure. and I could give them support. I mean, like in the priesthood, every day is different. You never know what's going to come up. You never know what problems you're going to deal with or what uh, struggles people are going to bring to you. And you never know when you're going to get called in the middle of the night to, you know, rush to somebody's bedside as they're dying. And so uh, definitely get a lot of training in that as well. But the big thing I learned is that as a chaplain and I, I wore my clerical attire, so I had a collar on, a Roman collar. And so everybody thought I was a priest, even though I wasn't. But I learned that as a chaplain and, you know, wearing that collar and people were, nobody in the hospital was having a good day, you know, like people that are having one of the worst days of their life, you know, mm -hmm. especially in the ICU, which is where I've mainly worked. But me just being there reminded people that God was with them and that that gave them hope and it gave them some strength and some comfort and I think that's going to be important in the life of a priest as well is you, you act as a agent of Christ and you bring that love and that peace of Christ to people uh, in their good times and in their worst times. How did the hospital ministry that you just described, you already alluded to it, but maybe talk more. How did delving into the suffering of all of those people and also your own suffering? Cause again, like you said, there was a lot of restless nights and other things. How did that enhance your one relationship with Jesus and number two, your vocation to the priesthood? So my relationship with Christ, I mean, I'd say in a couple ways it was kind of strengthened or um, influenced. Uh, one, I, I really, it really helped me to be able to look for and to find the presence of Christ in the midst of suffering. Uh, you know, you, you meet a lot of people in the hospital who just wonder, where is God? You know, like, why did he abandon me in this hospital bed? And, you know, I had to help them see that Christ was with them. But, in, you know, in order to point him out, I first had to be able to find him myself, you know. And so uh, it, it really prompted me to spend a lot more time in prayer and to, you know, I mean, one for just my own strength, you know, I, I needed that time in prayer uh, just for all the working sleepless nights and everything, but, uh, but, but yeah, I it just, I, I had to be able to find Christ in the midst of all that suffering. And I, I think, um, that's not an easy thing to do, but I, I think my own relationship with Christ and being able to see him in other people, um, in their difficult circumstances, uh, was strengthened. And I'm um, concerning my own vocation. I I'd say it just really, hit home that what I do is, or in what I'm going to do as a priest is not about me. You know, I, I, I definitely did not stay up all night sitting beside someone's bedside just for me. You know, mm -hmm. um, I didn't do it for fun. It, it was all for the other person. And, and, and so it really just uh, strengthened this call to live a life of service and to live for the other. And that when I get ordained, it's not, you know, just because I want power or fame or whatever, but it's because I want to serve other people and really give my time, my energy to 
to helping others. Now let's switch gears to your priestly ordination, Deacon. So how will your priestly ordination be different from your diaconate ordination? Well, the big difference will be there will actually be people at this one. <laughs> uh, True. Yeah, my, my diaconate ordination was in April of last year, so just a little over a year ago. And uh, it was, I mean, right in the heart of the pandemic and lockdown, even in kind of the earlier days of it, uh, when we weren't still weren't really sure, you know, what's going on. And so restrictions were very tight. And, uh, yeah, I just had a few family members. There were about five priests there and that was basically it uh the cathedral was empty otherwise but this year it's going to be different sounds like the ordination is going to be open to the public so i'm really looking forward to that to having people there to having the community and having more family and friends there to celebrate and i mean other differences like there's differences in the rite itself you know they're similar but the one for priesthood is a little more uh involved there's a few more parts to it one of the other things that will be different from last year to this year. And again, this is going to be kind of different because of just the circumstances of last year. But there's a part within the ordination rite of both um, for a deacon and a priest where, so like when the deacon is ordained, uh, the, the last part of the rite is the bishop gives him the sign of peace, and then all of the other deacons present file through and also give the newly ordained deacon the sign of peace. And it's kind of a, I mean, it, it's a sign of, you know, fraternity and kind of welcoming him into the order and into the brotherhood. And, uh, and at the priesthood ordination, it's the same thing. The priest gives the sign of peace and every other priest there floats through and gives the newly ordained, uh, that sign of peace. The strange thing of my ordination last year, is there were no deacons. Uh, you know, which is fine. It's okay. You know, it didn't like affect the validity of the mm-hmm. right or anything, but, uh, it was unusual. And so that was something that was very lacking was the bishop gave me the sign of peace. And then, you know, that, that was it. Like there were no deacons to then kind of welcome yeah. me into the brotherhood. Uh, and so this year, I think a large number of our presbyterate will be there. And so there'll be a lot of priests to, to do that. So I'm looking forward to that part of the right. Deacon, have you, where, when, when will you have your first, your first mass happen that next day? And then what parish will you be at for that? Yeah, sure. So it'll be at uh, my home parish of St. Thomas More in Manhattan. And so, yeah, it'll be Sunday afternoon at two o'clock. What are you most looking forward to once ordained a priest? Uh, well, I joke that the thing I'm most looking forward to is finally being done with school. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been, it's been a long process, but, uh, um, but no, I'm, I'm looking forward to a lot of things, really looking forward to getting into a parish, uh, to getting to know a community and really getting to work with people and just figuring out the life of a priest. But really what I'm most looking forward to is administering the sacraments, especially confession. Right now, I'm in a class, or this past semester, I've been in a class on the Sacrament of Reconciliation. And it's it's very, like, theological and academic, but there's also a practicum element to it, where we have to do practice confessions and uh, hear mock confessions. And some of them are kind of privately, and we just get evaluated. Some of them are in front of our entire class. But I found that like, I love it. You know, um, you know, I, I know it's fake or it's all pretend it's not real, but something about 
you know, working, talking with the penitent and just going through the, the sacrament, it just feels very natural. And I, I love it. I, I get kind of a rush out of it. So um, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to being able to, to hear confessions and to help people to experience God's forgiveness and his mercy. Do you have a favorite Bible verse and why is it meaningful to you? Yeah, you know, I, I can never uh, settle on a single verse. Uh, so <laughs> I'll, just, I'll, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories uh, from the Gospels. Uh, I've always loved Matthew's account of the walking on water. The disciples are in the boat. That Jesus comes walking across the water. But then Jesus calls Peter out to him. And so Peter has to step out on the water as well. And that takes courage. That takes faith. You know, the disciples were in the midst of a storm, you know, and there's all these waves. And Jesus is asking Peter to walk out over those waves, uh, basically asking him to do the impossible, you know. But Peter does it because he has his eyes fixed on Jesus and he trusts his Lord and he is obedient to what the Lord tells him to do, even if it seems like it's impossible. But there's in the moment when Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus and looks at the storm and the waves. And that's when he gets afraid and starts to sink. And, and yet Jesus kind of rebukes him like a little faith. Why did you doubt me? And I've just always loved that story because God will oftentimes call us places or to do things that don't make sense or that are scary or seem impossible. And he doesn't ask us to understand. He just asks us to trust him and to take that step out on the water. And as long as we keep our eyes focused on him, we're going to be okay. But when we let ourselves get distracted by all the noise of the world or the problem or just whatever the storm is, that's when we start to sink below the waves. And so... Yeah, it's always been a powerful story for me. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. We'll be right back and in the second half with John Stang. We're back on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, Called to Serve, with John Stang. George Toman conducts the interview. So John Stang will be ordained a transitional deacon for the Diocese of Dodge City on June 19th. He is from Prince of Peace Parish in Great Bend and is attending St. John Vianney Seminary in Denver, Colorado. So John, thank you for coming on today. Tell us a little bit about your family and how the faith uh, was practiced as you were growing up. Okay, sure. So I grew up in, in Great Bend for most of my life. I'm actually an only child, and I was born and raised Catholic, baptized Catholic, my dad is a cradle Catholic. My mom is actually a convert to the faith. She became Catholic when my parents got married in college. And pretty much uh, growing up, we went to Mass most Sundays. Uh, I attended religious education classes at my parish. I was taught a lot of the, the basics of the faith. Uh, when I got a little older, I was an altar server, maybe starting about third or fourth grade. And then I also, when I got into high school, I started to be a lector at my parish, reading the scriptures at Mass. My parents did a great job. It was a, it was a really beautiful uh, faith life that we had growing up. In terms of just kind of my own kind of vocational journey to the, to the priesthood, I never really thought about the priesthood, even though I, was, I did a lot of those things growing up. About my senior year in high school, I was just kind of having, I was kind of going through a rough patch, having some, uh, some troubles in my life, and, um, and I was getting ready to go to, 
to go to college, and I and I knew that I needed to to start kind of taking maybe taking my faith a little more seriously, figure some things out in my life. So I started to pray, actually taking prayer more seriously. And one day I was sitting in my chair in my, my I have a reading chair in my room, and I had a book out. And for the life of me, uh, to this day I can never remember what the book was that I was reading. I think it was a book on the saints or something like that. But I thought about just the call to holiness uh, that we're all called to. Uh, and I wondered kind of what my path that that looked like, and the Lord put in put on my heart that I could be a priest, and that was just the first time that I ever considered that option, and that was just a call that just continued to to stick with me. And I think even though I hadn't really thought about it to that point, I think a lot of the influences of my parents, the the influences of just priests that I had growing up, religious ed teachers, sisters, uh, just really helped foster that that call. What kind of inspiration did you find in watching other priests? I can think of a, a few, man, I had kind of several priests that were kind of influential on me growing up. The, the first one I can really sort of think of is uh, Father Charles Mazouk, um, who's retired now, but he was the pastor at Prince of Peace Parish uh, growing up, and when I was, or at St. Rose, rather, when I was a kid, I played competitive chess, and um, and I, I would travel to tournaments and stuff on weekends. It could be hard to find people to play chess with. Uh, and the Internet was kind of in its infancy at the time, in the late 90s. And uh, Father Chuck would actually play chess with me, because he liked to play. And we've actually gotten together, did a few years ago, and played chess together um, again. Um, and so it just kind of showed sort of the human side of a priest, like someone who can know how to, you know, know to have fun and, uh, and do other things. In terms of other kind of influences, I would say Father Reggie Urban was very influential on me uh, growing up. He was, especially during my formative years, kind of middle school, high school, he was around. He taught me how to how to lecter sort of properly, and was just a really good homilist. And I would say uh, the other priest who was influential on me was uh, was Father Wesley Chave, who is now the director of seminarians for the Dodge City Diocese, and he's currently a priest at the Cathedral of Our Lady Guadalupe in, in Dodge City, the pastor there. And he was influential because he was one of the first. He came to he came to Prince of Peace when I was maybe in early high school, and, uh, and he had not been out of seminary for very long at that point, and uh, he was one of the first kind of young priests that I, that I saw. And, and as I kind of got older and I started to feel the call more myself, it just looked like, okay, this is something that's, that is feasible. I can see someone who's, who's young and, is, and, is, and has gone through with this, and, 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 and he became eventually my vocations director and director of seminarians, and has just kind of walked with me throughout this entire journey. So, so I would say those, those guys were all uh, very influential and helpful in my vocation. You already mentioned it a little bit, John. I want to bring it up more explicitly to the forefront. When did you first hear the call to becoming a, a priest? I would say it was, it was kind of a mix of both of those things. I've kind of thought about it over the years. I think the initial call, as I mentioned, when I was a senior in high school, kind of going through a rough patch, just sitting in my room, reading a book and then hearing the Lord sort of say to me, you know, I could be a priest. That really, that was the, the first initial thing to put it on my heart. And it's just something I've not really ever uh, forgotten and still look back to. Uh, but I would say in terms of actually going to seminary, it took me a little while to actually go. Uh, this is very common. You'll, you'll, a lot of times guys will have, uh, it happens with women religious too, there can be a resistance and I think for me, the resistance really was uh, just I had a lot of different interests in my life. I thought about getting involved in political life. I thought about kind of teaching, journalism, 
and so when I went to college, I went to I went to Rono College, which is a small liberal arts college in Virginia. Uh, so something that's very far away from from Kansas. And uh, when I was there, the Lord continued to put it on my heart again. I was kind of resistant because I, what I couldn't figure out was, okay, I have a lot of these different interests. I I like to do all these things. How does this fit into God's plan? And so it took me a while to kind of integrate that. And and that really didn't happen until when I got out of college. I got my degree in history. I graduated in 2013 from Roanoke. And I decided to to stay around the Virginia area for a little while. And uh, I got a job eventually as a newspaper reporter for a small weekly newspaper, very close to where I went to school. And, And while I was there, I got to do a lot of different types of reporting and layout and... And it was a lot of fun, but I started to understand a little bit more about seeing priesthood more as a vocation rather than uh, a job. Oftentimes, started to, I, I had friends that were getting married. Um, I was in a position of something that I really liked doing, but yet I still felt this sense of kind of emptiness and, uh, and, and wanting and desiring more. So again, I, I started to, uh, I prayed more. I was uh, I, I was attending mass at my at the local church in Virginia, uh, and um, and I started to just ask more questions to the Lord about Lord. Um, I know you've had this. You wanted me to go to seminary for maybe a long time. I've been a little resistant. Uh, can you continue to open my heart? And um, one day I had this experience where I I, I did a news story on a, on a veteran. And, uh, and we wrote the story, we published it, and, and it was in, a, I think, a fairly prominent place in the paper. And the, the guy didn't live super far from where I was living, so I decided I'm going to take him a copy of the paper. So I go to his house, and he's a guy maybe in his, in his 80s, and, and he was kind of sad. When I went into his house, he was kind of sad, and, and I asked him what was wrong, and he said that his wife had, was having some health problems, and she had gone into the hospital that day. And that just kind of triggered something in my heart to say, you know, I really want to walk with this guy. I really want to help this guy. And I really didn't have maybe the maturity to, to pray with him at, at that moment, but put the idea in my head, can, I can walk with him, I can, I can pray with people like this, I want to offer sacraments to people. And so from there, I discerned eventually that I wanted to come back to the Dodge City Diocese because I wanted to work in more of a rural area and I just felt pulled to, to come back here. So I contacted Father Wesley, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and he, he was the vocations director at the time, and he, we just started the process, and doors just began to open, and I applied to seminary. So I would say, to kind of answer your question more directly, it was, it was really it was an initial call, and then I would say over time, things, as, I, as, my, as I began to open my heart more and more, things began to be more revealed to me, and I discerned my more specific kind of call. What's it looking like in terms of your your ordination here? Will it will it be a, a closed crowd invite only? Will it be open to the public? Do you have those things figured out yet? We're still working out the details on a lot of that. I've sent out some initial kind of invitations to seminarians and some other people, but I think we're still we're still trying to determine all that information. Let's talk about your family and friends, their reactions as you entered seminary. How did that go? Well, in terms of my, my family, when I initially thought about it in high school, really the only people who really knew about it, I would say, were my parents, and then also visited with a couple priests in, in the diocese a little bit. And I think my parents, I think it took them a little time to kind of process it, since I'm an only child and I'm the only one who would be able to have grandchildren. I think there was a little bit of some sadness there, uh, not being able to have that. But I think 
But I think over time, as I discerned, and my parents were always kind of along, I want to stress, were always along the way with me and, and always helping me and praying for me and, and giving me advice. And when I did make that decision to go to seminary, I think they had had a, a lot of time to pass that they were able to really, I think they always kind of knew I'd probably go to seminary in the end. Uh, your parents always seem to know you better than, than you do sometimes. Sure. And so uh, and so I think, that, especially my mom, and so it really was, they really were very blessed and very happy for me. And the way that they've looked at it, especially this has grown, I think, as I've been in seminary, is they realize that you don't have a wife and kids, per se, like you do when you're married, but you get a you get married to the church in a sense, and you get a church family. So you get you get brother priests, you get parishioners, you get just lots of support. And so uh, I think they've really come to embrace that just over the years, and that's going to grow even more as I get ordained here in, in June and I become a member of the clergy. In terms of my, my friends, I just got, you know, I think for a long time I was always a little scared to, uh, to kind of, because that's always the thing, what are people going to think? But I would say that my friends were very, very supportive. And I think some probably knew that I might have gurkin into it. You know, maybe I had a call to this. But they were but friends and friends that I, that I have now are, are just very, very happy about it. I've gotten really nothing but, but support. And even I would say for my family, like, like I mentioned, my mom's a convert to the faith. My grandparents are, are Presbyterian, actually, and, um, and they're very, very happy for me, very excited. So, uh, so even my non-Catholic family members um, have just given lots of support for me. Um, so it's been great. I have another question for you. Why diocesan priesthood compared to, like, religious life, for instance? Like, did, was that ever a discernment question? That's a very good question. For your listeners that may or may not be sort of aware, there's um, kind of two different types of priesthood that a man can join when he goes to seminary. He can either join a diocese, like one of the four that we have in Kansas, or he can join a, a religious order, like the Capuchins, Dominicans, Jesuits, or there's a lot of different groups that you can join. And um, I think the for, for me, uh, I I did I did look a little bit at at some groups. I discerned. I wouldn't say really super seriously, but I did look at the I did look at the Dominicans. I did look at the Jesuits and the Franciscans. Mainly just kind of perusing their websites and stuff. And but I never really did any major discernment retreats or anything like that. And I think there were always kind of uh, some factors in in that case. One was that. When you join a religious order, it's usually for, uh, they have a specific charism or, or gifts or talents that they share with the Church. So for the Dominicans, for example, it's preaching. And the Jesuits teach and do mission work, those types of things. And while I maybe thought I might have some, some gifts in some of those areas, I just never felt that I was totally in line maybe with that mission. Uh, and also I had a hard time kind of envisioning myself like, being, like wearing a, a Franciscan habit or Dominican habit. It just wasn't something I could quite I could quite see for as nice as they are and as, as great as those orders are. So I saw and I and as I discerned, I saw that my calling was more towards diocesan life because a diocesan priest, their charism really, if we could put a point on it, is the parish. Uh, it's it's taking care of uh, the sacramental life of the people that are that are in a specific geographical region. And, um, and, and so for me, that's what I felt pulled to do. Really what, really, what I wanted to do was I wanted to do a lot of different things. And I felt that the Dawson priesthood and the way the Lord was leading me was, uh, was that I had the ability to be able to, to do that. And then when I got to seminary, 
and I, I did retreats and spiritual direction, and that, that just became more and, and had a pa- different pastoral experiences, that became more and more confirmed. Uh, for, for, for guys that, that might be discerning either and priesthood or, or, um, or religious life, typically when you discern religious life, and, and this really comes from talking with guys and people that are in religious life, usually what you do first for something like that is you discern the religious life first. So you're saying, I want to join this specific group uh, because I feel like I have their spirituality. And then priesthood kind of comes a little bit later out of that. I didn't really recognize that at the time versus kind of Dawson priesthood. It's a little more direct. I'm, I'm discerning for, to be a priest for this area. So, so typically religious life kind of comes first, and then I would say the call uh, to priesthood. Uh, signs discerned for you by the, by the community if they need priests. So. Let's go ahead and start talking about your actual seminarian experience, if you don't mind. What classes and or, or duties have been most important thus far in your training? Gosh, well, uh, when you're in seminary, there's really four areas of, of formation that you really focus on. There's the spiritual, there's the human, there's the intellectual, and then there's the, the pastoral. And I would say they seem kind of separate, but they all sort of go together. You're, you do spiritual formation through holy hours and praying together with your other seminarians. You do spiritual direction in retreats. Intellectuals, you take your classes. Human, you, you focus on just um, doing formation. You're assi- a priest who's assigned to all your formation. There's counseling options at the seminary. And then pastoral is you're assigned to a specific kind of assignment or with what we call apostolic work, so going to a parish on the weekends or helping at a homeless shelter or a hospital or something like that. For me, in terms of classes, I would say the classes that have been the most important, you take a lot of classes in the seminary. You take two years of philosophy classes, and then you take four years of theology classes. And the classes that have really helped me the most have been the ones that really focus on what does it mean to be human in our relationship with God. So, like, when I was in philosophy, I took, uh, took a metaphysics class, uh, which uh, I could be a whole other conversation to explain <laughs> what metaphysics is. But, uh, but, but, but basically, it's understanding what our being is and kind of who we are on a natural level. And then when I got into theology, I would say that I, the classes I've enjoyed the most have been, again, classes that focus on our relationship with God. So I'm in an anthropo- a theological anthropology class, so understanding who man is in his relationship with God, man's end, the, the beginning, and then also uh, my sacrament classes and the theology behind all the different sacraments, uh, the Eucharist, um, baptism, confirmation, those types of things. And I've enjoyed a lot of my pastoral assignments as well. I mean, I've had, I've gotten to teach for the last three years, um, I've gotten to teach religious education to various ages, high school, third and fourth grade, fifth and sixth grade, mostly doing sacrament prep like confirmation and first, and first communion. And that's just really kind of brought it home, because you can learn a lot of these things in, in a seminary classroom, but to be able to explain it uh, to somebody uh, and be able to teach the faith, it really helps you to integrate it and really to, to help explain it to others uh, so they can grow in the faith, too. Out of curiosity, ha- have you had, like, homiletics yet? In- uh, yes, I have. Actually, okay. you take uh, four semesters of homiletics in our seminary, and I'm actually... Funny, just before I got on the phone with you, I'm actually giving a homily for class tomorrow. It's <laughs> going to be a bilingual homily in English and Spanish. Oh, so, wow. Um, uh, the scenario being a, a baptism of several children with, uh, in a kind of a bilingual setting. So you definitely take homiletics, and I mean, you get a couple different professors to give you just some different, because every priest has a bit of a different style, as you can imagine, and you probably observe from being at parishes. And so getting different perspectives 
on how to preach and <laughs> the theory behind preaching and all that. In 2018, you wrote a piece quoting Mother Teresa about how the mission is in one's own backyard. Can you explain what you meant? Sure. Uh, that so I wrote that piece. Yeah, back in 2018, I think you said, mm-hmm. and it was after it was the summer it was for our diocesan uh, newspaper, the Southwest Kansas Catholic in Dodge City. And it was uh, a piece that I wrote after the summer that I completed Prayer in Action, which is a, a summer mission program for high school and college kids where they, where they come, they stay for about a week, and they do service projects, and then there's a retreat component that they do in the evening. And then the summer before that, I taught Totus Tuus, which is also a mission program where you were, but instead you're teaching more religious ed to younger kids in the daytime and then uh, doing talks for high school uh, kids in the, in the evening uh, at different parishes every week. And so, um, and they call those specifically just mission programs because you are really going from place to place and you are really serving those in need and you are really helping uh, people, really helping kids specifically learn the faith. Mother Teresa had a quote where she said, Mother Teresa was, was obviously a sister who, an Albanian sister, who went to India for most of her life and she uh, and to work with the poorest of the poor and founded the Missionaries of Charity. Uh, and uh, someone asked her, I think, uh, about missionary work, and she said that everybody can find their own Calcutta. And what she meant by that was basically what you, what you just said, that, that our missionary work, we don't have to go to the far corners of the world to do mission work. Some people are going to be called to that, and that's a beautiful vocation. But a lot of us are just going to be called to being missionaries right here in our own diocese, even just within our own, uh, even within our own families and the media people that we work with. And so in my own life, you know, I had the opportunity to be able to do summer mission work, but also I, I feel like there's a lot of mission work just in, in the Dodge City Diocese itself. You know, I decided to come back and serve my community, serve the people around me. Most of the priests, actually, in the Dodge City Diocese are actually from other places. Uh, they're from Africa, the Philippines, uh, Vietnam, and, and other places. And so we, we often think of mission territories just being very far away from where we are, but it's actually right here in just our own backyard, as you said. Could you go into a little bit regarding your upcoming ordination, which will be on June 19th, and talk through a little bit the ceremony and, and the celebration? Yeah, so ordinations, if, if your listeners have never been to one before, they're... I, encourage you to go they're very they're very they're very beautiful uh events both uh there are three ordinations that you'll find in the catholic church there's one for diaconate uh priesthood and then episcopacy or becoming a, a, a bishop for for the deacon the ordination is very important only a bishop can ordain and uh how and i'm the only one this year for the diocese of dodge city that's going to be ordained to to the diaconate and what will happen is uh you'll go um you will be you'll you'll be in, in an owl, which is the white garment that you wear, a cincture, which is the rope that you wear, and you'll have an amice, which is a, a thing you wear you can't see, but you'll wear underneath, and you you come in in that. Then uh, how the the ceremony, uh, the ordination works is it'll uh, you'll go forward, they'll present you to the bishop, and then uh, there'll be some readings. And actually, I just got done uh, selecting. Uh, the readings that I wanted to have for the ordination uh, yesterday, and then the bishop will will give a homily, and then after the the homily, then there will be a a moment where you will stand up and you will make your promises. There's several, I think there's about ten of them, I think, uh, that you make. So you make 
you make a promise to like to pray for the church, like pray liturgy the hours, simplicity, celibacy, then make a promise of obedience to to the bishop and, and to his successors for the diocese that you are or, or religious order uh, that you are that you're pledging for. And then after that, then you'll they'll do the litany of the saints, and they only do the litany of the saints really a couple times. Really, they 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 do it if you went to the Easter Vigil, they they do it there, and they do it after baptisms, and then ordinations is the other occasion that they do the litany of the saints. And then you'll stand up, and you will go forward, and then the the uh, bishop will then will lay his hands on your head, and then eventually he'll say the prayer of ordination, calling down the Holy Spirit, and then a- after that prayer or a certain point in that prayer, you become officially uh, ordained deacon, and then you are vested in your deacon vestments, so you'll wear a stole, and a deacon stole is, well, looks very similar to a priest stole, except it's just kind of off, it, it goes off to the side, rather than instead of around the neck, and then uh, and then it, what's called a dalmatic, so this is very similar to what a priest wears a chasuble, and it doesn't have... Uh, the best way I can describe it is a priest chasuble doesn't have sleeves, sleeves down the side, uh, but a deacon dalmatic uh, has uh, sleeves down the side. And then you'll be handed on a book of the Gospels, because the deacon has the ability in the Catholic Church to do, uh, to be able to pre- to read the Gospel and to preach. Kinda. And then you'll take your place in the sanctuary with the bishop and the priests, and you will then assist at the altar, because that's one of the other duties that the deacon does, is he usually sets the altar and does a couple other things right before the consecration of the Eucharist. And then the next day, uh, after the ordination... Um, after all the, the celebration is complete, you preach your first Mass as a deacon, reading the Gospel and then preaching your first homily. So um, I'm going to do that at Prince of Peace Parish in, in, in Great Bend uh, this year. What will your last year of seminary be like? Yeah, so, uh, so as you said, when you're, uh, your last year of seminary, typically you are, you are a deacon. You take a normal class load, so I'll take the normal kind of 15, kind of 18 hours of credits that I, that I would take to finish up my degree. And, uh, and I'll also have some, some kind of comprehensive exams at the end when I'm finished. What makes your, your last year distinctive, uh, being a deacon, is you take on, first of all, sort of more of a leadership role in the seminary. So at, uh, at St. John Vianney, so we have a house system where uh, we have guys that live on campus for fo- when they're in philosophy for a couple of years, and then off campus when, they're in, when they go into theology studies for the next four years. And the, these off-campus houses are, are old convents that the seminary um, has accommodated, in, and we and we use them for the, for the guys to live in, and they're they're connected to typically to parishes, and so you'll be assigned either to to one of those three off-campus houses or the two floors that we have here uh, with the philosophy students, and you really take a role in being able to help form the men that are here, walk with them, and and just, because they they really, I can think of my years in seminary, I often looked up to the deacons, and still do, who were ordained. On the weekends, I will be assigned to a parish, and actually have already been assigned, uh, to a parish in Denver uh, to go to, where I will help with with various ministries and also preach occasionally at Sunday liturgies and then have a day off probably on, on Mondays, like a lot of priests usually will do. It's a very exciting time. On the one hand, you're still uh, you're an ordained man and you're, you're doing ministry. On the other hand, you're still uh, a student finishing up your classes uh, the, the following spring. 
thanks to John Stang and Deacon Brian McCaffrey for sharing their vocational stories. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to this week's One Body Stewarding God's Creation show. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 101.7 KJDM, Lindsberg Salina, 88.1 KRTT Great Band, and 88.1 KBDM Hayes. If today you hear his voice, Pardon not your hearts.